2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer here with Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. What's up, you guys? Hey, hey. Got a good show for you this week. Kyle Cheka, a writer that I have very much enjoyed over the last year or two. I frequently quote one of his pieces, which is always reminds me to have someone on this podcast when I'm like incessantly bringing up some idea or something from their work. Uh, he wrote a story about the Airbnbification of the world, how we ship these kind of Scandinavian interiors and espresso bars and that kind of feeling of peering into another person's apartment, but it kind of looks the same as every other apartment. What the hell is that feeling? <laughs> it's not an easy thing to write about, so I'm impressed at someone who does in a way that stays with me. Uh, we had a really good conversation. I'm glad you got him on, man. His stuff has been so good. I feel like he's been like uh, on long form a ton in the he, last year. He is a hardworking uh, young person who has a very, um, I would say, a very broad approach to freelancing. All right. What about sponsors? Uh, Aaron, if you had a uh, broad approach to getting in touch with people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna I'm just gonna Snake. take a pause there and let let that thud against the bottom <laughs> of the ocean. Our sponsor this week, as always, is Mailchimp. Mailchimp makes it easy to send emails to your customers, to your friends, to people who are interested in your writing, what have you. I like their service. We use it. Evan uses it. Pretty much everyone I know who sends email to more than a few hundred people uses it. Thank you, Mailchimp. And now here's Aaron with Kyle Chaka. Hey, welcome, Kyle Chaka. How's it going? Uh, do you, you run like a co-working space or something like that, is that right? Yeah, I do. So it's called Study Hall, and it's a bunch of freelance journalists working in an office together. I don't know why I decided to start from that point, other than um, you seem to be a person who knows a lot of other people who do what you do, which is kind of unusual on this show. A lot of people I've talked to who listen to this show or have been on this show use the show as a conduit um, because they don't know a lot of people who do what they do. So how did you come to know so many other journalists? I mean, I feel like it was maybe 
growing up as a journalist or like coming of age as a journalist in the Twitter era where you're so instantly connected to the kind of group of people who are pursuing similar things and and working in media online. So everyone kind of knows each other by default. And as people either become freelance writers uh, by choice or not, or move in and out of jobs, you kind of get to know them in different capacities. And so I feel like I've just gotten to know a bunch of people who have pursued work in freelance writing and keep doing it. I think a lot of people who freelance, freelancing was great when they started and has maybe been a declining paycheck or has gotten more difficult over time. But you chose to do this yeah. knowing uh, what you were getting into. What, <laughs> what, what drove you in that direction? I don't know if I knew what I was getting into, really. Yeah. Uh, but the reason that I started freelance writing is that my first jobs in media were in visual art media. So it was more art criticism, art journalism. And I really find myself wanting to get outside of the art world and write about different things. And if you're in that kind of niche, there's no way to get outside of it. Like you can't push the boundaries of your job to cover something different. So freelancing was like a way to totally get outside of that world that I was kind of enclosed in and try to write about different things. What drove you to art criticism in the first place? <laughs> um, I mean, I've always been interested in art and I studied art history in college as well. I just kind of, I grew up drawing and painting and, and doing art in high school. And then I took this AP art history course. And then I kind of realized that there was this whole other side of art where it was writing and, and research and kind of narrative. And I think that's how I got into writing, period, actually, is thinking about art and starting to write about art. And I wrote for my college newspaper at Tufts University and, and did art reviews. Art writing among the niches of writing is as far off on its own island yeah. as it could be. Um, the best way I could describe it is most art criticism couldn't be published anywhere except a yeah. criticism of uh, art journal. You can't, there's not a lot of uh, overlap there between more mainstream forms of writing. So did you feel like you had to shift gears a lot when you started writing for magazines? Yeah, I think it was definitely something I had to learn and kind of continue to <laughs> learn. Uh, like my sensibility really does come from art writing and thinking about visual stuff. So as I kind of made my way outside of the art world, I picked up fluencies, I guess, in other areas. And I kind of did tech first off. And so I, I got to learn more about tech and started reading more tech journalism. And, and I kind of just grabbed bits and pieces from different genres, maybe. I didn't actually know when, when you were coming in that you had a background in art criticism, but... When people come on the show, I often think about the one-sentence blurb I'm mm. going to write on our website um, when I post this, and I was trying to think about how I'd describe what you write about, and I failed, but now I think I maybe have a closer <laughs> definition, which is a lot of your writing is about aesthetics. Um, even when you cover tech, it's less supply chains for Asian chip makers, um, and it's more what does the office of today's Silicon mm. Valley look like? So you have a piece on the Airbnbification of the world, which talks about this aesthetic of raw wood floors, sort of Scandinavian countertop, espresso kind of uh, design. I'm, I'm not doing a very good job of <laughs> characterizing it. Um, but I can't imagine that this is a commonly pitched kind of magazine mm. story to talk about 
um, interiors from a critical sense. Yeah. Um, where did that come from? It was very interesting. I mean, I think where it literally came from was I wrote, I also wrote this profile of the Kinfolk magazine editor, Nathan Williams, mm -hmm. uh, and that Kinfolk is this kind of like hipster Bible that established a certain aesthetic that's now uh, synonymous with like hipster coffee shops and stuff. And after I published that piece on Racked, this guy from Germany tweeted at me and he was like, yeah, you know, I, I hang out all around Europe and all these coffee shops kind of look the same to me. And what's the point of traveling somewhere else if it's just going to look like exactly where you started? And over the next like three months or whatever, I just kept thinking about this idea that stuff has come to look similar in certain places. And I kept trying to think about why and how it happened and if this was even actually the case. And then I, I kind of developed a pitch around that story that I wanted to figure out why all these coffee shops look the same and, and kind of why there's this homogenous culture that exists in these certain spaces. And I pitched it to Michael Zelenko at The Verge in this kind of extended magazine pitch style. Uh, and he, he was definitely interested. I think he was a little, not intimidated, but, but just... He was like, okay, we can do this, but we're going to not make it like a theoretical academic piece. Like this right. needs to be a, an actual story. Uh, and I just kind of went off from there and, and talked to as many people as I could and tried to piece together something. How do you tell a story like that as a narrative rather than an academic deconstruction? In the case of that story, it was a matter of finding the people and the companies and the like actual spaces that this happens in. And so the idea is very abstract, like the idea of, of airspace, this like technological geography that all looks the same. But when you get on the ground, like when you're in these spaces, you can feel it in a very visceral way. So when you talk to the guy who sees all the same coffee shops or the Airbnb person who's frustrated that every person who comes to their Airbnb is the same, or you talk to an interior decorator who you know, designed the Airbnb office and kind of like adapted this aesthetic intentionally, uh, you start to piece together how people actually execute this idea or how they live the idea rather than just think about it. Hey, I'm going to pause things here quickly for a word from our sponsor, Audible. Audible has more audiobooks than anyone. They've got other cool stuff now, some kind of podcasty, comedy-ish stuff. Uh, but the reason that Audible was in my mind this week is I've been trying to finish this book that's like 1,100 pages long. It's Cryptonomicon by Neil Stevenson, and I just don't seem to have the time in my day to get through those 1,100 pages. So I switched over and started listening to it on Audible. I'm now almost done. That is the power of unlocking your commute and various other parts of your day to amazing spoken word, whatever you call it, read aloud stuff that you can get on Audible. So thank you, Audible. If you're a listener to the show, you can go to audible.com slash longform. That's A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash longform. You'll get a 30-day free trial and a free audiobook of your choice. If you want real value, actually, I think if you go with Cryptonomicon, you're getting 1,100 pages read aloud for no money at all. Again, audible.com slash longform. Thank you, Audible. 
Our next sponsor today is Texture, which is an app that lets you tap into the world's most popular magazines anytime, anywhere, using your smartphone or tablet. They don't have all of the same stuff that's just floating on the internet and it's easy to get. They have a lot of exclusive stuff, magazines that aren't online, back issues, videos. They organize them personalized for you with editorial recommendations every day. If you wanted to get like all the magazines you could, like a whole doctor's office of magazines sucked into a single app, there's no better one than Texture. So I want you to go to texture.com slash longform. You'll get a free trial and you'll be supporting this show. Again, texture.com slash longform. Start binge reading for free right now. Thank you, Texture. Here I am back with Kyle Chica. I think the the part of the piece that has really stuck with me is this idea that something like Airbnb as a website is so much more than a um, do-it-yourself hotel booking service. It's a way that you can peer into other people's lives and Mm -hmm. in some ways clone that life wholesale and ship it around the world. It's it's a very, not necessarily dystopian, but it's a very modern sort of what is the actual effect of the internet? You know, you don't necessarily know all of the things that will happen when you start renting out your couch, which is that (laughs) your couch may appear all over the world. So when you're talking to someone about a story like that and you kind of have a thesis like that, Mm. how do you stay open to ideas that could contradict your idea or complicate your idea? Because that doesn't seem like a narrative that Airbnb is going to be eager to push. No, uh, it's definitely not an idea that they're eager to push, I guess. I mean, I did talk to Airbnb for that story, and actually one of their interior designers, when I was interviewing him, he like definitely pushed back against this idea, but then at one point he was like, yeah, there's a kind of international Airbnb style that's happening. And immediately, like, I knew that he understood what I was talking about, even if that wasn't the company line, necessarily. But then, as I'm interviewing people, or as I'm figuring out who to talk to, I look for people who can push back against the idea that I have. Like, I have a lot of conversations for pieces like that that don't go into the piece, but it's with people I know and have a good dialogue with and I can kind of test out the idea on them. And more often than not, they'll argue against it and kind of push me in different directions so I can make sure it's kind of navigating uh, the different perspectives in a good way. And also with that piece, uh, Michael Zelenko was very good at highlighting or working to highlight which parts were relevant to the argument and which parts I was just doing because I wanted to do them. That's a really interesting question. When you're writing something that is in some ways to fulfill your own interests, this story is not, oh, hey, we need someone to cover Airbnb. Like, let's call that Cheka guy out. This is something that comes from deeply from your own interests. I think that's the, the thread across all of your writing that I've read is I don't think you write about a lot of things that you're not personally interested in. But when you are writing from a standpoint of personal interest, how do you know what belongs in the story and what is a really crazy thing that you've been thinking about recently? (laughs) It's a good question. I mean, good editors, I think, are, are really helpful for that. And as you go through revisions on a piece, like some parts of it shrink and some parts of it grow and you kind of get a sense of what is relevant to your actual argument. So with with a lot of features I do, 
some more so than others, but there's usually this like thesis or idea that's driving it. And what you have to judge by, I think, is is what feeds into the general arc of that argument. And if something is going off in this other direction, even if it's really fun and interesting, like it might not be the most effective thing to include in it. Because you have to like make sure that in the end the reader understands that theory, or like at least can can judge it for themselves. It seems like a a big part of that challenge is getting on uh, the same front page before you even make the argument. Like I was, I read through that piece about Airbnb and that piece that you wrote about Kinfolk magazine, and in both pieces, you're basically taking apart an aesthetic, but you have to tell the reader what that aesthetic is, yeah. and. In the case of Airbnb, they're going like, "Yeah, hey, there's no aesthetic. Like, there's no aesthetic to see here." You know, if you sh- if you could show people a, a with a single uh, image, you could probably cut like a large portion out. But there's a value to describing it and saying these are the details that matter. Like, yes, this is kind of IKEA furniture and this, but these are like the things that really matter about these aesthetics. How do you communicate that? Like, I, if I try to describe Kinfolk magazine to someone, like, you very quickly start using words like hipster. What is, what is the shorthand for you, and how do you address sort of shorthand issues in your work? Yeah, I mean, I guess with Kinfolk or with the Airbnb airspace thing, in both of those cases, I think I have a tendency to try to name things, which is maybe not always the best. Uh, airspace is good though. I like Airspace. <laughs> I really like it too. Uh, it seems like people, it's compelling to people to use. Um, so there's one strategy which is like to name something and to kind of like point at it with the whole article and be like, I'm trying to show you this thing. Yeah. Understand it. Look at it. Uh, and then I think the other approach maybe comes from my art background, which is that in every good piece of art criticism or art history you have to do this like ekphrasis like describe the object in mm-hmm. front of you and so in both of those pieces there's this process that I go through which is visually describing what you see and and making sure that you and I are on the same page with what we're both looking at and I think that's like a way to establish an aesthetic and then proceed from it in a comprehensible way you know, Kinfolk has these certain signifiers like the raw wood tables and subway tile and like austere ceramic plates or whatever. So if you can pinpoint those things and kind of show how they get perpetuated in other situations, then you can also show the influence of Kinfolk in other places. What's it like trying to describe those things literally? Like I think about the piece that you did on Supreme, the uh, streetwear brand. Mm. And Supreme is probably the most famous streetwear brand in the world. But if I were to describe the object, you know, it's a six-panel hat with an S on it. You yeah, know, yeah. it's 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 underwhelming almost when you make it literal. Yeah, once you describe it and once you establish the parameters, then your job is also to animate the meaning of of that aesthetic. So yeah. with Supreme, like, I can tell you, oh, the logo is you know, Futura Oblique or whatever it is. And it's usually red and it's Mm -hmm. italic. But then you can talk about what does red mean? Like, where does this typeface come from? You know, what meaning do you get out of it? What associations do you have with these visual qualities? When I think of Supreme, if I were trying to illustrate Supreme with an image, I would probably show the line out in front (laughs) of Supreme, not the Supreme products. Like, a lot of these things are 
almost sterile aesthetics that are animated by people who are fanatics. Mm. Is that something that interests you? Yeah, totally. Uh, I think that's a really good way of describing it. I, I, like, I think there was a period a few years ago where what I thought I wanted to write about was only people who were zealots. Like, they strenuously believed in the thing that they believe in, and that was their entire framework for living. And so I think that continues somewhat in the aesthetic stuff. Like, the kinfolk editor, Nathan Williams, is totally a zealot in, like, his own way, where he's this very committed, very intense person and it's only because of his commitment and his kind of belief that this aesthetic has become so meaningful to other people. Yeah, I think uh, David Gran was on this show and one of the first ones, and Max asked him whether he had previously been interested in giant squids. He was like, no, no, I'm just looking for crazy people who are like <laughs> obsessed with something. It doesn't, mm. their obsession is almost irrelevant to me. I mean, the more unique and weird, the better, but that's just because it attracts the even more fanatic people. Yeah, fanatics and obsessives. I think those make very good characters, obviously, but I, it makes me think about like how now I am the obsessive that I'm studying. Like My recent pieces have been about things that I've been obsessed with to a probably unhealthy degree, and like I'm always kind of implicated in them, as with the Airbnb story or with Kinfolk. And so I kind of go into my own obsession and try and turn it inside out in a certain way. Did you read people who wrote about aesthetics previously that you modeled your work on? If anything, it was art criticism, like reading people writing about uh, visual art, like Peter Sheldahl in The New Yorker or Jerry Saltz in New York Magazine, Roberta Smith in The Times, like people who really engaged with aesthetics in the context of visual art. But then I'm, I should probably read more, honestly, about aesthetic theory mm-hmm. uh, and kind of the critical context of that. And I, I dabble in it and I try to read as much as I can. But I also like proceeding from a blank space, I guess, where I'm not totally informed by, you know, taste theory or aesthetics theory. But I'm trying more to engage with the real world as it is in front of me. The um, the pieces that we've been talking about that you've written appear in uh, The Verge, Curbed, Eater, some of them. So these are real estate, technology, and food publications mm. uh, on their surface. What does it mean to be doing the, the kind of work you're doing, say, alongside a review of a Android phone or a restaurant? How, how does your work interact with its setting in mm. these places? I like thinking about that a lot. (laughs) I mean, I think if I talk about aesthetics, there's also an aesthetic of the article itself. And it's like, I almost think of all these publications as like lifestyle publications. Like they all project a certain worldview and a lot of them are based on what you consume or what you identify with. I mean, one of my goals is to kind of critique that or break that down, like break down why you desire the things that are being shown to you. So to have the airspace article for example running alongside like gadget reviews and kind of uh tech company coverage i think that makes the argument stronger in some ways in that it's sitting right next to the same things it's critiquing or it's presenting an alternative vision of the world that those things create in a maybe slightly different way than like investigative journalism which i think is more actively uh valuable (laughs) maybe but well i mean the story about Airbnb notes 
investigative reporting done about race discrimination yeah. in, in Airbnb hosts. But what I feel like your work does is take those present day news stories and projects them into the future <laughs> in every direction, um, both positive, negative. I mean, I don't think you can really read that article and feel particularly good about Airbnb. It doesn't yeah. criticize Airbnb per se, but it presents a future for the world in which Airbnb is ubiquitous. Yeah. Um, what kind of reactions do you get, you know, in, in a technology publication or something like that? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of like a common criticism of tech journalism is that it's too utopian. Like it's too positive about the companies that it covers and it's too thirsty about the gadgets. So when I write an article that's critical of those things or critical of the desire for those things, I think people people do have a negative reaction. They're like, why are you hating on this? Why do you yeah. hate Airbnb? Like, what did Airbnb ever do to you? Right. <laughs> Which, I mean, it's not a super negative reaction by any means, but I, I want to make people uncomfortable in their desires or their tastes. And so if I can tweak you a little bit, if I can, like, make you look at what you want in a slightly different way, then I think it's, like, accomplished the goal. And I think, I mean, particularly with the Airbnb article, it started to make people think twice about what they look at in an Airbnb or even in, like, a, a fancy coffee shop. The same symbols that you once wanted start to take on a different tinge when someone uh, shows you the, the other side of, of the equation. If I were to identify the news story of this particular week that most closely mirrors this, uh, Facebook is uh, receiving criticism that the news feed is a great place to uh, hoax some people or to create fake news. And Mark Zuckerberg's response was, that's crazy. This isn't even that big a percentage. People um, vote based on their life experience, which is... Uh, crazy to say right now when people's life experience is heavily being on Facebook. Yeah. I mean, and I feel like the defensive technology industry response is generally, oh, we're not doing something. It's not a big deal. It's just like, it's just a couch rental service or mm. this is just like a way to keep in track of old friends. It's to deny its own um, profoundness less than it is to say we're good. It's kind of saying, oh, we're not that big a deal. Um, how do you convey scale when you're talking about these topics? And how do you convey, like, how important they are? Yeah. I mean, the the whole platform thing, like, with the Facebook news feed, it, it makes me think about how, you know, I want to show how those platforms are not neutral. Like, yep. they're not government utilities. They're not just, like, the the riverbed that the water runs over. Like, they have an intention, and they have a force uh, to shape what's around them. And I guess... With that, like, there's an absence of data, right? And yes. data is what we always want. We want the numbers. We want the proof. There's nothing to fact check. Right, right. But there are people's experiences, like, and there are the feelings that they have as they proceed through these spaces. Yes. So with Airbnb, you have, you know, hosts discriminating against black people or trans people. And those are very real experiences of the unevenness of these platforms that that purport to not do anything yeah um and so i think it really is a matter of finding the people who have had those experiences and showing what they go through what's the interview process like for that i mean normally when you're interviewing someone you're saying 
what happened, where were you, who was there. When you're describing these uh, isolated technological experiences, what is what are you looking for in people's accounts? I talk to people who have had who, who I kind of know to have had strong experiences or difficult experiences with the the platforms or with the companies. But then I think when you're talking to them, you know, there's the you kind of get the normal stuff and you're like, yeah, I use Facebook. Yeah, I'm on Airbnb. But there's almost there's been these moments where people start narrating their experiences and you can kind of tell from their voice or their behavior that they're kind of like reliving this this visceral moment of technology. And I, I think maybe trying to restore the the visceral nature of that experience and how strongly they they like recall it and and understand it is really important. And it gets lost when we're just talking about oh, a hundred likes on whatever status or my newsfeed looks like this. Um, so to change gears, do you make a living as a freelancer? I do make a living as a freelancer. Have you throughout your, uh, freelancing career made a living as a freelancer? I have. Yeah. I was in staff jobs for two ish years. Uh, and then I kind of transitioned from part-time and freelancing to full-time freelancing. And so I've been full-time freelancing for four years now, I think. You write a lot. Like, what's your clip to make a living? Like, how how many stories do you feel like you need to pull off a year? A year is hard. I mean... How many stories are you working on at once would maybe be an interesting question. I'm I'm probably working actively on two or three stories at once. Uh, I mean, I'm lucky now that I mostly work on big features, and they're kind of longer-term projects, and they pay well, so... If I know if I'm working on two or three features at a time, I'm I'm doing fine. Yeah. And that's not that many a year to me, I guess. Uh, but I have, I mean, I have such a weird relationship with the idea of, of being a very productive writer or publishing a lot of stuff. What, what's your relationship with it? You, you don't want to feel too noisy, right? You don't want to look like you're just putting stuff out there for the sake of putting stuff out there. But I, I mean, at my current rate, which is two or three features at a time, maybe two or three features published every two months, say. I, I like everything that I write. I don't write anything that I don't believe should exist. I think most of your work is online only. You you gravitate to a lot of digital <laughs> uh, digital places, and you're producing a lot of work. But there's a kind of a, a general uh, rush of the ocean over it. When you're working on that clip, do you feel like your stuff endures? Do people come back to your pieces afterwards? Or are you constantly scrambling to 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 get something new out so, so someone's looking at something you're writing? Uh, I mean, I, I've tried to put less pressure on myself to be visible lately. Yeah. Uh, like, I think in past years, I've felt bad that I don't publish enough sometimes or felt anxious about not having something else out. But, like, I'm still super young in my career, so I, I've tried to worry less about not publishing you know something every week yeah Uh, but i kind of i wanted to get away from the blogging route anyway and i don't i don't think i have something to say every day uh so kind of proceeding through the ideas and the stories that matter to me like i i think i stay in the conversation enough and just with um like when when you put something out online, there's always the chance that like the timing will be bad or people don't pick it up or, you know, you're just not the viral story of the day. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, some like the, the Airbnb story that I did went 
it went very viral. Like it got a lot of traffic. I don't think it was the top of everyone's minds. Like it wasn't on people's nuzzle lists or whatever. Uh, but I definitely felt that I was getting a good response from it. Uh, there was great feedback on Twitter and stuff. And so, yeah, I was, I feel like engagement is always coming through and like, that is what I want anyways. Do you let that influence you though? Like Mm. if the Airbnb thing does well and I think, okay, I'm going to give, I don't know that this one didn't do well, but I'm just going to put it there. You did a piece for N plus one on the library of Congress. (laughs) That piece doesn't do well. That piece, no <laughs> one talks. You never hear about it again. Um, does right. that does that make you want to do more Airbnb kind of pieces and not do Library of Congress? When you strike me as a pretty savvy uh, internet user, so I'm guessing that you have kind of an idea when your stuff's out there and moving around, and getting shared, yeah, and when it's not. Yeah. Do you feel the lure of oh, this would be the kind of thing that would really take off? Mm. Yeah, I do. I mean, though, again, it's, like, about a diversity of stuff. Like, I don't only want to do viral hits. Like, I don't want to chase after that. Uh, But when the piece is animated by, like, an idea or a a kind of concept that I have, the more readers it has, like, the better it works, right? Because the idea propagates more. Um, Whereas that N plus one story was a really interesting example because it... I think it reached really far, but where it reached was like librarian email lists. You know, academics shared it, professional librarians shared it, archivists shared it. And I I could kind of feel that too. Like I, I got some very interesting emails uh, back from that. So it's just a different kind of response. It's not, you know, tech people tweeting at me all day, but it is, you kind of feel that you're connecting with people. I think that um, in art there's maybe the thinnest dividing line between uh, people who are doing it and people who are writing about it and sort of critiquing it. There's always been this sort of idea that, oh, well, art criticism is art or, you know. And when you write about lifestyle, I get this faint glimmer that you could be running a lifestyle magazine (laughs) or that you could be taking the ideas that you're writing about and animating them yourself. Is that something that appeals to you? It does appeal to me, but maybe more in the abstract. Like, I think I like preserving that glimmer of possibility without uh, actualizing it. Like, I think maybe that is what makes the article better. Whereas if I tried to actually start a lifestyle magazine, it would probably bomb. Um, And it would just, it kind of undermines the, the journalism in a way. Like, there are art critics who paint but there are very few who do both with equal facility or with equal success. Uh, Usually one takes preference over the other, but I do. I mean, I love, I love that idea of like form and content being the same. Like I want to write about lifestyle in a lifestyle magazine. Like I want to critique technology in the form of technology and kind of have the piece be this like, infiltrating force that like explodes from within or whatever you want you want something that gets into the space and sneaks in and then blows up i i often reference your work in conversations that are completely tangential to the topic at hand but once you give a name to it once you invent the name of the airspace the airspace starts popping up ever i start using it all the time like some of these forms of criticism feel like they're defining things so that we can talk about them in relation to other things not some like i don't actually care particularly about airbnb 
But now that I have that idea of the airspace, you start seeing all, all different forms of airspace. You start、mm. seeing、uh, Irish pubs. You know, there's, like、yeah. a, there's a company in、uh, Japan that manufactures Irish pubs and ships them all around the world. So you can go to an Irish pub anywhere in the world and flip over the like, you know, little metal sign, and it's made by this company. They、yeah. make these、uh, interiors. Those kind of ideas, I think, will probably outlast. Airbnb itself. Right. I mean, I don't know about Airbnb, but once you give a, a name to it, once you call the hipster a hipster, <laughs> then you've opened up this whole other universe. What, like, what, are the univer- like, what are the things right now for you that you feel like you need to give a name to? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do, like, in, just in response to that stuff, like, I like using the writing to give people tools to kind of do their own deconstructing or do their own thinking. So once、yeah. you label something, it It becomes an object and it like helps other people understand their own lives.、Um, right now, I guess the things that I want to talk about <laughs>、um, I like, I'm interested in the idea of the future and this idea that we're always, that we are now living in the future when it's always just the present.、Um, I think that's interesting. I think、um, the mediated experience of defining your life through digital platforms is interesting. Do you want to come back to things like Airbnb or are you burning yourself out on these topics? <laughs>、uh, no, I mean, I, th- I don't feel burnt out on the stuff that I write about. I think、yeah. hopefully it's less about the company itself and more about the consequences of, of what it makes. So I think those consequences, like airspace, like you say, have a life outside of the, the exact subjects of the story. But then that was another problem that I had with straight up journalism or with like business reporting or something. You're reporting on a company, it's doing something right now. There's no guarantee it'll be doing the same thing in a year. Like that kind of writing is so ephemeral. Like all writing is ephemeral, but you know, a report about quarterly earnings is more ephemeral than projecting some idea or some understanding of, of what a business or an industry does. Like、uh, Adrian Chen's Twitter conversion piece. Like that idea of social media remaking your life so vastly, that will be relevant for so long. And like showing that through characters and narrative, I think is really powerful and is something I would like to do more of.、Uh, and even if it doesn't make total sense right now, maybe that idea applied five years down the line will make even more sense and be valuable to people. Thank you, Kyle Chaka. Thank you. And that was the Long Form Podcast. Thank you, Kyle Chaka. Thanks to my co hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, our intern, Courtney Harrell. Thank you, thank you, thank you to our sponsors, Audible, Texture, and MailChimp. You make this show possible. We'll be back next week. <laughs>